Tonight's speaker, our very own Sister Teresa Christie Balick, teaches upper school history at St. Agnes School and serves as mission superior for the group of Dominican sisters here at the Church of St. Agnes. While completing her master's degree at the Catholic University of America, Sister Teresa Christie worked in campus ministry and has also served in her community's vocation office. Sister entered the Dominican Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist in 2008 and professed her final vows in 2016. As a Dominican Sister, she received her religious name under the patronage of Saint Teresa of Jesus, the great Carmelite reformer from Avila. Please join me in welcoming Sister Teresa Christie. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. Well, let's begin with a prayer. Um, let's pray an Our Father and, and particularly ask the intercession of St. Joseph, whose octave uh, we are in and who St. Teresa had a great devotion to. So let's pray an Our Father. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Saint Teresa of Avila, pray for us. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. So some of the first things that people ask you when you're a religious sister is uh, how did you get your religious name or how did you pick that particular patron saint? So since I know that might be on your mind, I'll just tell you that real quickly and then we'll get into the actual um, lecture. So when I was little, um, I definitely can say that I learned my Catholic faith from the lives of the saints. My parents, uh, you know, we had all the little saint books as a kid and I just loved them. And I remember when I was eight, about eight years old, I learned about how saints were the patron saints of certain things, and I thought that was fascinating. So I like for every problem, I was like finding the saint for it. And, um, and at the same time, I started actually having chronic headaches, and so St. Teresa is the patron saint against headaches. And um, she never helped me, actually, with headaches. <laughs> and, so, and so from a very early age, I resented St. Teresa of Avila. I, she was like a broken saint. And, um, and I, I really did actually understand that it was, you know, it was like she was interceding before God, and like I can't really be mad with God about that. But, um, but from very early on, I just, I just kind of had resentment towards her. <laughs> and, um, I remember reading the little saint blurbs that would be in the little kid books, and I was like, oh, she, she, she found in monasteries, and she, and she wrote books on prayer. And I, being a very utilitarian American, I just was like, I was very interested in the saints that did things, that were out there helping the poor. And so I just, again, I wasn't impressed. And um, isn't this funny? <laughs> I'm serious. And, I, and I, I noticed she was always in the saint books, and I was like, she was always counted amongst the big saints in the church. And I was like, but why? I just, I couldn't figure it out. Um, when I was a junior in high school, a teacher gave me a bookmark that had her bookmark uh, prayer on it. If you don't know it, it's let nothing disturb you, let nothing frighten you, all things pass away, God never changes, patience obtains all things, and he who has God finds he lacks nothing, God alone suffices. And uh, from t having taught middle school and high school, I know that um, adolescents at that age are always looking for like a life motto. 
And, um, and I found that, I was like, that's my life motto. You know, cause, and, but really, and, and, and I saw that, um, you know, anytime I had a problem at the end of this day, my, the answer of how I needed to respond was in that prayer. Either I needed to be patient, or I needed to not be afraid, or I just need to remember that God t- kind of takes care of everything. Um, and so, but then, gosh darn it, it was that same St. Teresa of Avila. You know, I just was like, oh, fine. But I did not, I did not quote her in my senior year of high school quote. You know, what I mean, like the quote, you know, your your personal quote, because I, I just couldn't get over the fact that it was her. And um, no, I'm serious. And then when I was in college, I had a spiritual director who introduced me to St. Francis de Sales, and uh, we did the 40 days with St. Francis de Sales. And in the back of the book, there was an advertisement for 40 days with St. Teresa of Avila, and I bought it. And I read the little biography, which was much longer than the one I had read as a child. And I realized there was maybe a lot more to this saint than I had presumed when I was eight. And I found that actually we had some similar personality traits that I often did not find in other saints. And so um, I, I kind of started to say, oh, maybe I need to be open to her. And maybe she's been following me. Uh, when I finally entered the convent after college, uh, we had a class where we just kind of read all the spiritual classics. It was really wonderful. And the second book we read was St. Teresa's Way of Perfection. And so that was the first time I really read her writings. And again, she just really spoke to me as a friend and as a mother. And uh, there was a custom in the novitiate at the time that has since been suppressed, I think, um, where when an older novitiate sister thought that a postulate should maybe take a name, they would... Um, check the book out of the library, out of the library about that saint and put it on their choir stall as like a subtle hint. Um, so sure enough, on her feast day, uh, her, her biography by Marcel Eau Claire, which I, which I think is the best biography, uh, showed up on my choir stall. And so kind of the rest was history from there. Um, so but while I'm not a Carmelite, uh, I'm definitely a spiritual daughter of, of St. Teresa. And we know that St. Teresa had a great fondness actually for Dominicans. So we're of the Dominican order. Many of her most supportive spiritual directors and confessors were Dominicans. Uh, They were the ones that got her to write things down, not surprisingly. The Inquisition at the time uh, was full of Dominicans, and and they did not burn her either, uh, but affirmed, no, I'm serious, but they affirmed her experiences and offered advice to clarify her writings. In her writings, she refers to Dominicans as as great learned men, members of the glorious order of St. Dominic. Finally, St. Dominic appeared to her on two occasions, urging her to have courage, and also gave her, uh, her, her reform a blessing. Um, after another vision, she predicted that the Dominican order would greatly serve the church in the future. I think St. Teresa's spirituality that is grounded in the practice of the virtues and a focus on the humanity of Jesus, as opposed to a vague and misleading mysticism that was popular at her time, is a fruit of her relationship with the Dominicans who have a very incarnational spirituality. I also think that she and our seraphic sister, St. Catherine of Siena, that we heard about last week, would have gotten along very well. I think they would have been good friends if they had lived at the same time. And they both were named doctors of the church together in 1970 by Pope Paul VI. Um, And being a historian, I have to give some historical context to St. Teresa. It actually is really important uh, for the way that she writes. Uh, These are the glory days of 16th century Spain. Uh, Spain was on the top of its time. Uh, They had reconquered the southern territories to the Muslims in 1492. It had gold-producing colonies and a strong monarchy that had much devotion to the church, which kept Protestantism at bay while the Counter-Reformation forged on. 
It was a time of noble titles, chivalry, castles, and honor. The world she grew up in colors a lot of her metaphors, particularly that of, of castles and of kingship. It is also interesting to note that at this time, there were a lot of like pseudo-mystics, uh, particularly women who were deceiving themselves and deceiving others with kind of a false mysticism. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why St. Teresa is actually very cautious herself, um, and also why a lot of clerics of her day were very cautious of her as well. So just to kind of understand that that context is there. Uh, Teresa was born uh, on March 28, 1515. So just a couple years ago was the 500th anniversary. And I know that um, her walking stick traveled around uh, the world they, uh, as, a, as a relic. Pope Francis was able to venerate it. Um, she was born to a lower noble family that was very devout. Her father was a wool merchant who brought uh, a, a knighthood in order to hide his converso Jewish heritage. Nonetheless, they were devout Catholics. I'm going to switch here as I talk about her. Um, this is kind of a, a collage of, of things related to her. This is actually her signature we have. Um, these are the walls of Avila. So um, it was a walled city that has a very castle feel to it, which we'll talk about the interior castle. Uh, this picture up here, actually, that, is, that was uh, painted of her during, her during when she was alive. So they say that's the closest representation of her. She actually saw it, and she said that they thought they made her look too beautiful. Um, she was known for her prominent eyebrows. Um, <laughs> down here um, is the famous uh, Bernini Renaissance sculpture that is in Rome. Uh, this is uh, one of, uh, a depiction of one of St. Teresa's mystical experiences of um, an angel piercing her heart with um, an arrow. Um, yeah, so OK, we'll go back to her biography. Uh, so her, fa her family, she came from a devout uh, Catholic family. Um, it's said that she was one of 12 children. She was this, um, of her father's second marriage after his first wife died quite young. She maintained good relations with her siblings throughout her life, particularly with her older brother, Lorenzo. Um, and they, we have many letters, actually, from, from uh, her and Lorenzo. Several of her other brothers actually became conquistadors in South America, and they never returned home. Particularly, one of the most charming stories of her youth uh, was that when she and one of her brothers ran away from home because they wanted to be martyred by the Muslims. Her, yeah, I'm serious. Um, their uncle caught them just outside the city gates and brought them home. As a child, she was known to play hermit with her siblings. Teresa says of herself, though, quote, I love this quote, when I was young, I was told I was clever, and I believed them. When I was older, they told me I was beautiful, and I believed them, too. Now they tell me I'm a saint and I have no illusions, end quote. <laughs> She's funny. Um, so uh, she grew in beauty and in her incredible charm. Her mother, whose fondness for tales of chivalry was much imitated by Teresa, died when Teresa was 12. And she then entrusted herself to the Blessed Mother. But bad acquaintances amongst her cousins brought her into worldly and vain behaviors. This greatly worried her pious father, who sent her straight away to an Augustinian boarding school, where the nuns were austere, but they were kind to the girls. Teresa was impressed by them and began entertaining the ideas of becoming a nun herself, but not an Augustinian. She thought they were too austere. Uh, she left after 18 months due to ill health, which would plague her her whole life. After she recovered, she ran away from home and entered the Incarnation Carmelite Monastery in secret. Her father, disappointed yet resigned, eventually approved and gave a very large dowry so she could actually have private quarters in the convent. Interesting. 
Um, Incarnation was, has a notorious reputation. Um, if you've ever seen the eight-hour miniseries of St. Teresa, anybody seen it, the whole thing? You have. You know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, so um, the, the convent that she um, entered was, not, is, was is said to be not austere, where the sisters um, were not obliged to uh, keep cloister. They actually were dependent off of their families. Um, so poverty was a little shaky, which means that there would have been um, great discrepancies in how each sister lived. Um, there were some sisters had servants. Um, so this and this kind of developed out of actually like after the post Black Plague era. Um, so it was and a lot of like noble girls went there. So it was like kind of a way they could sort of continue on their noble life actually in a convent. Um, it was not as bad as depicted in the, in the, in the video, apparently. Um, but it definitely was a place that wasn't uh, spiritually challenging if you didn't choose it to be. And Teresa chose, actually, to go there. Uh, she chose to go there because one of her friends was there. And she also chose to go there because she had a great fear of going to hell. And quite frankly, nowadays, I mean, those are not... I mean, those are not good reasons for entering a convent. Like, we would not have accepted her. Um, no, really. I mean, they really aren't. But it just shows that God, like, God actually can write straight with crooked lines. And Teresa entered the convent with some kind of shaky motivations. She later professes her vows um, after a pretty fervent novitiate. She said she was a fervent novice. And uh, becomes extremely ill afterwards, especially due to terrible medical treatments. She was kind of um, put under some experiments by, anyway, a weird doctor somewhere. Um, she was paralyzed for three years and miraculously recovered thanks to the intercession of St. Joseph, whom she was greatly devoted. My favorite story of her of all time came from this period. So when she was paralyzed, at one point in time, they thought she probably was in a coma, actually. And the sisters, I mean, they put wax on her eyes. They thought she was dead. They had dug her grave. The sisters actually were practicing the music for her funeral. And her father, though, was convinced that she wasn't dead. So he sat beside her bed, like as like a wake, basically, and fell asleep and kicked over a candle and lit her bed on fire. And, and then she woke up, you know? <laughs> it's like, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, this is who this woman was, you know? Um, but during her convalescence, when she was paralyzed and nearly burned to death, um, she began actually to read books on prayer. Uh, but after her recovery, she became kind of a spokeswoman for the convent and spent much time in the parlor entertaining guests uh, with her wit and her charm, abandoning mental prayer altogether. So she had kind of been introduced the idea of prayer um, and like, like prayer beyond vocal prayer, and then, and then she abandoned it. Uh, but through a series of graces, Teresa was given a vision of her place in hell as a lukewarm soul and had a profound experience before an Ece Homo statue that had been recently um, delivered to the convent. At this point, though, she was in her 40s, so it gives us some hope. She decides to live a life of prayer, she decides to, and gathers some other nuns with her to do so. Eventually, they receive permission to leave and start the Carmel of St. Joseph of Strict Observance, the first of its kind, and she later encouraged St. John of the Cross, whom we'll hear about next week, to reform the men's Carmels as well. The sisters were to live in strict poverty, relying only on donations, so not on their families, to be barefooted, to strictly observe the cloister, um, and there were to be no more than 15 sisters in each convent, so that it would be a true family. As strict as this sounds, St. Teresa was sure that the convents were true families and that her gaiety um, helped make fidelity to such observances a joy. 
She always exhorted her sisters to never be gloomy. May God save us from sullen saints, she says. There are all sorts of opposition to her work as well, from the Carmelite order itself uh, to Rome. Uh, the towns were very um, opposing to her work because they didn't want to have to support another monastery. God pushed her to begin actually 16 monasteries of her order, which is no small feat. She, she spent only a few years as a real Carmelite in solitude. Most of her life she spent traveling to these different parts of Spain and dealing with worldly matters. The travel was arduous and her health was terrible. In fact, the last several years of her life she spent with her arm out of her socket. Yeah. <laughs> she famously was tossed out of a carriage during a rainstorm and landed in the mud. She looked up to the heavens and said, is this how you treat your friends? No wonder you have so few. <laughs> she was even forced back into the incarnation to reform it. She had to reform it, that crazy place where she was before. Uh, the nuns actually all out rebelled and blocked the door. She won them over by taking their beloved statue of Mary and putting it on the prioress's seat indicating that it was Our Lady that they were obeying. So she had a, a charm and a way of winning over even the most difficult. She died um, at one of her monasteries on October 4th, uh, the night that they actually were fixing the calendar. So it actually was October 15th. <laughs> um, at the same time, a tree that had not bloomed in years bloomed instantly upon her death. Nine months after she was buried, she was exhumed. And this is probably the most well-documented exhuming of a saint um, in church history. There's a lot of details. If you've, anybody ever read it? It's something to read. <laughs> um, but she was incorrupt and smelled like flowers. In typical Spanish fashion, she was cut up and sent all over Europe. Uh, it's very easy to get a relic of her. You go anywhere in Europe, oh, there's a finger of St. Teresa in that chapel. There's a, you know, a, a heel of her over there. Um, her heart was found to have a scar in it. From, um, from when her heart was pierced by the angel in that experience. Her heart had a scar in it. She was beatified in 1614 and canonized alongside some giants like St. Ignatius Loyola, St. Francis Xavier, and St. Isidora Seville in 1622. And then she was named the Doctor of Prayer in 1970. St. Teresa is known for three foundational writings. These make up her spiritual doctrine, which eventually made her the first woman doctor of the church, the doctor of prayer. The first was her autobiography, written under obedience. Um, this was in 1565, so it doesn't include her life until her death in 1582, so it's like almost like a 20-year period that we don't have. Nearly at the same time, she wrote The Way of Perfection at the request of her nuns uh, at the first Reformed Carmel at, of St. Joseph. Here we read her profound exposition on the Our Father, emphasizing the importance of vocal prayers, even for mystics. And finally, the work uh, considered the pinnacle of her spirituality as the interior castle in 1577. In this work, she describes the soul as a castle with seven mansions, each mansion having several different rooms, even fountains, she says, uh, each corresponding with the spiritual development towards union with God. If you're familiar with spiritual theology at all, uh, you would know what we call like the three stages of the spiritual life, the purgative, the illuminative, and the unitive ways. Uh, these distinctions go back to the early church fathers, the pseudo-Dionysius, and have been developed over time by St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Catherine, St. John of the Cross, St. Ignatius Loyola, St. Francis of Sales, and most recently in the 20th century by Father Gary Lagrange, OP. If you want to know my favorite Theresian spiritual writer, it's Sister Ruth Burroughs. Anybody heard of her? Yes. 
Um, she's a, a currently living Carmelite in England um, and what has written what many people say is some of the best spiritual writings of our modern time. So I would recommend her. Uh, the three stages of the spiritual life correspond with the interior castle set out by St. Teresa. The first three mansions correspond with the purgative stage, mansions four and five, and some say six, with the illuminative stage, and mansions six and seven with the unitive, and I'll go through all those. St. Teresa has many smaller works, such as her book of her foundations, spiritual testimonies, which is where we get a lot of the dates and some of the more specifics of a lot of her mystical experiences. Uh, soliloquies, which were spontaneous prayers, poems, maxims, and several volumes of letters that in, uh, contain everything from thanking donors to uh, letters to her brother to request it King Philip uh, II of Spain to support her work. It must be noted that her writings are deeply personal. These are not the writings of a speculative theologian, but one writing from experience. We know that she was not learned. Uh, she read and listened to homilies in scripture. Uh, we know for sure that she read um, the Confessions of St. Augustine, the Letters of St. Jerome, and De Asunas, the third spiritual alphabet. Uh, this contributes to a lot of her make, making a lot of mistakes, actually, in her writing. So she'll say stuff like, somewhere St. Paul says, and then in the footnote, you know, the editor will put, you know, that's in Galatians. Or, um, or she'll say, my favorite was she says, one time, I think I heard somewhere, um, it said, think of what is above and not what is below, for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ your God. And, and you're like, well, Teresa, that's, that's definitely a scripture. You know? <laughs> um, or my favorite is she's always praying for the Lutherans in France. Oh, always. And you're like, oh, they were in Germany. You know, but to her, like all Protestants were just Lutherans. Um, but, it, you know, but it, it gives you a lot of, um, of hope. You know, she was not particularly learned. Um, so, yeah. Um, at times, she's difficult to follow uh, since she, had, she was writing in several different sittings. Um, her analogies and her terminologies can overlap and have different meanings at different times. Uh, she goes on long, off-topic tangents. Uh, there has been a movement to um, make her the patron saint of those with ADD. No, I'm serious. Yeah. Yet her writings were noted from almost the beginning as something remarkable, the expression of a personal journey of the soul towards God. Thus, St. Teresa is noted as a doctor of prayer. And in that regard, she actually is quoted twice in part four of the Catechism, uh, namely defining contemplative prayer as, quote, nothing else than a close sharing between friends, it means taking time frequently to be alone with him who, knows, who we know loves us, end quote. What she is trying to communicate is her experience of how God had drawn her into deep union, something difficult to communicate this side of death. Yet found in her office book is the bookmark that I quoted at the beginning, and I think that that summarizes her spirituality with remarkable simplicity. And it's her bookmark that I would like to arrange this talk. I noticed that there are seven lines of the bookmark and there are seven mansions of the interior castle. So what I hope to accomplish is to, work, is to walk through the interior castle the best I can and uh, through the lens of her bookmark, her life and her loving advice to her spiritual daughters. Before I get into the interior castle, I wanna um, kind of highlight some like, major themes of her spirituality. The first major theme is humility and obedience. Uh, this is before God and before others. She's constantly submitting her writings and her experiences to authority. Uh, she says that the whole edifice of the spiritual life is that of humility. And humility's daughter is obedience, and obedience's sister is patience, and that's from St. Catherine. The second point is self-knowledge and detachment um, is necessary for growing in holiness, and we'll talk more about that. 
Uh, the third is perseverance in prayer, to never give up prayer. This is the hallmark of St. Teresa. The fourth is da the danger of bad relationships and the benefits of good friendships, good relationships. The fifth is the humanity of Jesus, and this would combat over-spiritualization and spiritual delusion, and like, ooh, I'm seeing things. Like, to really like, stay focused into who Christ revealed himself to be in his incarnation. Of, uh, that virtue is really the measure of holiness. That's how you know, is virtue, the practice of virtue. Uh, conversion as a lifelong process tailored towards the individual. We're never done. And affability towards one's neighbor and towards one's daily crosses. She made a lot of jokes about her life, and it's, we need to, too, keep it light, you know. She also talks about four different grades of prayer, which I'll tie into at the interior castle. Um, in her autobiography, she outlines four degrees of prayer using the image of water, which she says is her favorite image of prayer. She says that the soul that sets out to cultivate his or her interior life, it's like planting a garden, and one has to water that garden with prayer. She uses the image of the well, much like the woman, of, woman um, at the well, whom Jesus mysteriously says, if you only knew the gift of God. If we only knew what God had in store for us if we just let him act. At first, we have to use great effort in prayer, such as pulling water from a well in a bucket. That's the first mansion. This is long, arduous work that only brings a certain amount of water, and you only have a bucket. <laughs> the soul must do the work. Next, St. Teresa says the soul acquires a windlass, or like a water wheel, to draw water from. And this makes it easier. This is in the fourth mansion. Next, the soul has a, the soul has a stream nearby its garden, so the, so the ground is already saturated, uh, which makes it easier for the garden to grow. That's the fifth mansion. And finally, the fourth water, it just rains. So God just floods the soul with rain. That's the sixth mansion. I think that's a beautiful image, it's just the rain. Okay, let's get into the mansions. Okay, the first mansions, let nothing disturb you. She starts out by saying, quote, I began to think of the soul as if it were a castle made of a single diamond, end quote. The whole idea of unity of the diamond, I think, is very beautiful, saying that a certain amount of interior harmony and interior unity is a result of union with God. The soul is a single diamond. Uh, this is how Teresa begins, the interior castle, a kind of unity. She says that the door of this first mansion is prayer. A person beginning to pray for the first time with some regularity and intent, is what she says. A person is starting to look inside and find God, and has some way, shape, or form determined to actually continue in prayer. This person is no longer just saying the words of vocal prayer, but they're actually meditating on their, on their meaning. St. Teresa says that at this time, it is so important to grow in self-knowledge, and particularly to repent for one's sins. This, for many of us, is our experience of conversion from sin to a life of grace, or for some of us, also just a, the first time of really seriously living our Catholic life, our Catholic faith. She reminds us that each mansion has many rooms and that there are many rooms of self-knowledge. Yet she urges us never to take one's eyes off of the merciful love of God. This self-knowledge should produce a humility before God, not despair. St. Teresa so famously says, quote, 
Humility is keeping within the bounds of truth, and the truth is magnificent. We are nothing, but God who dwells in us is everything. We don't understand our great dignity, and we insult it by bringing it down to the level of the vile things of the world, end quote. She calls humility the, fo the foundation of the whole edifice of the spiritual life. In the first mansion, there are still plenty of temptations. St. Teresa warns of reptiles, of poisonous snakes, figuratively, of course. This can be everything from worldly pleasures to temptations to scrupulosity, which is a strange type of spiritual pride. It seems that the soul is entirely um, occupied with warding off temptations to the devil at all times. It's arduous. This is the first water, when the soul is lifting the bucket. Since turning back is so easy at this point, St. Teresa beseeches the soul to take refuge in the Blessed Mother during this time. Let nothing disturb you. St. Teresa warns that many souls enter and wander in the first mansion for a good portion of their life if they do not have the courage to turn away from sin and worldliness, such as honors and material preoccupations. She says it's exactly what the devil wants, you not to proceed. She says that those who do not focus on the majesty and the mercy of God at this time will not proceed because they will be so discouraged by what they see within themselves or they will think themselves unworthy and unable to proceed. Teresa herself reassures the soul that all things are possible with God and even refers to herself as a sea of sin and iniquities. She says, quote, this is one of my favorites, hope you can hear. She says, quote, do not stop on the road, but like strong men, Fight into the death for the search, for you are not here for any other reason than to fight. You must always proceed with this determination to die rather than to fail to reach the end of the journey, end quote. She also says, quote, remember that you have, only one, you have but one soul and that you have only one death to die and that you have only one life to live, which is short and which must be lived by you alone and that there will be one glory, which is eternal. If you remember this, there will be many things about which you will care nothing, end quote. So persevere in both conversion and in prayer. So this is the first water. The second mansions, let nothing frighten you. This St. Teresa equates with the active effort of prayer to meditate on scripture and the life of Christ and to stay, recollect, to stay recollected throughout the day to frequently turn inward and acknowledge the presence of God within. This is aided, says Teresa, by reading good books and having spiritual conversations and friendships. In the second mansion, the soul has advanced enough in the moral life and in persevering in prayer, yet still has many imperfections to purify and needs to grow in charity. Yet it has a great desire for God. Let nothing frighten you. We're on the second mansion. Yet as one can expect, the devil wages war on the soul, but in unusual and insidious ways. St. John the Cross talks about spiritual gluttony, trying to devour a spiritual matter, such as books, de devotions, retreat hives, in order to get somewhere in spirituality. Or they can be tempted by their former sinful way of life, or the fear that their newfound spirituality might ruin their health or their reputation. She warns that the soul must choose to proceed and to build on rock, not, from, not on sand from now on. Usually the soul is shaken here in realization of how weak they are in the face of temptations, and prayer might become dry at this point as well. 
St. Teresa urges the soul in this state to be simple and resolute in prayer and not to become frightened by the deeper realization of one's sinfulness, or even more, by one's capacity for greatness, to dwell with God. I think here, Pope Benedict XVI's famous line is apropos, quote, the ways of the Lord are not comfortable, but you are not created for comfort, but for greatness. I think friendship should be noted here. St. Teresa was an ardent lover of God and of man. She is often overly noted for warning against having too close of relations with relatives, but here she's only meaning that those sort of relationships that take away from prayer and the discipline of the regular life. She actually had a tremendous tender relationship with her father, her brother, St. John the Cross, and many lay people. She was able to balance such a life because God was first. She warns, however, against bad relationships and bad confessors, and notes that she was greatly, gravely influenced by certain cousins in her young age, worldly relatives and uneducated and unholy confessors. Yet she is not afraid to be vulnerable either. When a benefactor widow forcibly befriended St. Teresa, her love, she loved her tenderly while trying to teach this woman not to be emotionally attached to her. This woman, the Princess Evelie with the eye patch, remember her? Okay. Um, she did. She's a real person. Uh, later betrayed St. Teresa and turned her autobiography into the Inquisition, causing St. Teresa undue worry. Yet Teresa readily forgave her, noting that this was yet another trial from the Lord to purify her. St. Teresa's emphasis on talking to God as a friend spills over into her deep relationship with others despite the cloister grow. I do think it's interesting that St. Teresa refers to our Lord so much as, as his majesty, kind of indicating like a distant kingly state. Yet she also encourages us to talk to him as a friend. This is so much at the heart of Teresa's spirituality, that God became man, the humanity of Jesus as both king and as friend. The third mansion, all things pass away. Here we see the soul, quote, living upright in carefully ordered lives, end quote. The soul at this stage is diligent in works of charity, is recollected in prayer, is avoiding committing even venial sins, and is careful in their speech. They experience spiritual sweetness and consolation in prayer. They think themselves wise enough to guide other souls. St. Teresa actually really warns against this. She says that, um, that she did this and she failed miserably at this stage because she did not, in fact, have enough virtue. To the soul, he's made it. He's in the seventh mansion. You know, and that wasn't too bad, right? Not too much suffering. Um, but all of a sudden, it's all gone. Poof, it's all gone. The soul is being shattered of its illusions of piety and more deeply purified of its intentions. St. Teresa tells the soul not to panic because God knows how well to test us. Yet the soul will desperately search for new methods of prayer, new devotions, new podcasts, you know, maybe Bishop Barron's going to have a new one out, and then they'll just spark me again. Um, the prayer is dry. Virtue is hard. God is distant for a very long time. There is a great temptation here to give up, to even lose faith. It seems that all was for nothing. Maybe you've been deluded, you know. Again, St. Teresa counsels not to give up prayer, even though it cannot pray as it did before, and to respond to the grace of deeper conversion. God is asking you to purify your motives, to love God, to love the God of the consolations, not the consolations themselves. Here the soul is being purified of self-love, even that which is most hidden to it. Was all their spiritual efforts only about themselves, 
Or were they really seeking God, who is in the desert? And to love God when, when prayer is dry to the senses and dull to the intellect. That's the real test. St. Teresa says here, quote, Be proud that we are helping God bear the cross, and don't grasp at comforts. It is only mercenaries who expect to be paid by the day. Serve him without pay, end quote. It is good to note that there is a difference between aridity that comes from laziness in prayer or from sin and the experience of spiritual dryness in the third mansion. A soul that is really in the third mansion will double their efforts in prayer without laziness. Uh, they will be fearful of going backwards. Someone who is spiritually lazy is busy looking for distractions. All things are passing. If we li live the supernatural perspective of life, we will be able to persevere through trials. But above all, at this time, the soul needs humility and obedience. It needs to know that it doesn't know everything about God yet. God has yet to directly reveal itself, himself to the soul. All the ascetical practices in the first, second, and third mansions are like a caterpillar spinning its cocoon, one of the most famous metaphors of St. Teresa, and that's hard work, the cocoon spinning. St. Teresa says, quote, don't let aridity distress you. Perfection has nothing to do with such things, only the virtues. Your devotion will come back to you when you least expect it, end quote. The fourth mansions, God never changes. There's a difference in the spirituality and the soul between the third and the fourth mansions. This is like one of the splits. The soul begins to enter into supernatural prayer, and God takes more direct action to communicate himself to the soul. St. Teresa explains the difference, the difference between active and passive recollection here, saying that in the first three mansions, the, soul effort, the soul's effort was the main driver in prayer. Prayer and recollection was, quote, acquired through hard work. Meditation was discursive, vigorously involving the intellect and the will. Now the soul begins to experience supernatural or, quote, infused prayer, prayer that comes from God alone, not acquired by one's own effort. While it should not abandon vocal prayer or discursive meditation, the soul seems to be drawn in unintentionally beyond these prayers, but never above these prayers. Vocal prayer and discursive meditation now open the soul up to supernatural prayer infused in it by God. And this is the second water, using a windlass or a pulley or like a, a water wheel. The soul is, has a help um, in prayer that comes directly from God. She speaks of two types of, of um, infused prayer. Uh, the first is the prayer of supernatural recollections. Sometimes it's translated differently than that. Um, this she describes the soul as like a hedgehog or a turtle withdrawn into itself. The soul is withdrawn into itself to find God there, and God teaches it there. Thus, God's actions are directly upon the intellect in this prayer. Distractions and wanderings may persist, but this prayer is supernaturally induced and has great spiritual effects on the soul, such as an interior peace, when one leaves prayer, a profound humility for the things of God, and a stable will towards what is good. The second type of infused prayer is the prayer of quiet. This prayer, Teresa speaks about in nearly all of her writings. This is a deeper form of recollection that comes directly from God and has its primary effects on the will. The intellect and the memory are still active, but the experience and the actual possession of God is much deeper, longer, and convicting of the will towards God. It gives the soul great energy in that it wishes to do nothing but to love God. It seems to do the will of God with great ease and peace. But this isn't to be confused with like a retreat high. This is a much more stable and um, supernaturally infused state of prayer that is preparing the soul for union with God. Here, God is transforming the caterpillar and the cocoon into a butterfly. 
It must also be noted that these forms of prayer are quiet in the sense that they do not involve images or concepts or ideas or visions. It is a loving awareness of God in a new way that is strong yet gentle in the soul. And it is not the result of reading or reasoning either. It's a pure gift and one that goes beyond one's personal times of prayer as well. God never changes. I guess I could say that temptations and distractions in prayer don't change. Uh, in this mansion, um, St. Teresa says that temptations and distractions are still there, but now they actually do the soul good uh, because they help the soul grow in humility and in perseverance. The soul is actually able to like see them and then just ignore them. She gives advice um, to never give up prayer, to practice detachment from everything, and to seek greater solitude as to be receptive and to continue towards union with God. Here the soul is realizing a deeper reality of God, that God does not change, and that's the soul that must move towards him. The fifth mansion, patience obtains all things. In the fifth mansion, St. Teresa wonders how she'll ever be able to explain all the hidden treasures and riches of this mansion. Here the soul experiences a deeper form of prayer, the prayer of union, or sometimes known as the prayer of simple union or the prayer of the seat of the faculties, depending on which translation you have. Here the soul, quote, falls asleep to all the things of the world. The faculties, that's the will, intellect, and memory, are suspended, and there is a virtual unconsciousness, almost as if the soul has withdrawn from the body and is somewhere else, united with God. However short or long this prayer may be, the soul is confident that it has kind of touched God, that it has actually been united with God for a moment. And this is the beginning of what she calls the spiritual betrothal. St. Teresa says that now the butterfly emerges from its cocoon. It's beautiful and white. It has almost a vehement desire for penance, for solitude, and to know God. It is overwhelmed at such a blessing as it prepares to be betrothed to the king. St. Teresa warns that the soul must remain humble at this stage because, quote, all the powers of hell are about ready to rage war on it, end quote, and to keep it from total union with God. It must never be idle. It must keep its eyes fixed on the king. She warns that this is a rather comfortable and stable state for the spiritual life. It is even a state of great spiritual delight, one that she calls, quote, a glorious foolishness, a heavenly madness. One is quite zealous and capable of the things of God at this state. This is the third water, where the ground is just soaked from irrigation. She says that the soul simply must progress towards union with God and not grow lazy or idle or proud here. For going, for going backwards at this time would be very, very bad for the soul because of how much progress it actually has already made. She also notes here that the butterfly, or the dove, sometimes she calls it a dove, um, she calls it, um, is never at rest. Here, St. Teresa notes that the soul must be busy about the deeds and the works of the Lord and not be distressed when it's called away from prayer to perform acts of charity or of obedience. The soul is beginning to learn to live in prayer. She also makes some strong points about um, all, how we might have all sorts of beautiful thoughts and heroic thoughts about our willingness to sacrifice for God. But Teresa brings us back to reality by saying that the true measure of our love for God is our actions. She says, quote, For we cannot be sure if we are loving God, although we may have good reason for thinking that we are, but we can know quite well if we are loving our neighbor. Patience obtains all things. Key here is that the only way the soul becomes a butterfly is that because of its early toil and perseverance in prayer, the practice of the virtues, and death to self and the little things. 
St. Teresa notes greatly the dangers of wanting honor. She calls them little points of honor and an attachment to little pet venial sins like envy and gossip. She says this sort of stuff tethers us down. She says this is something that the soul must die to early on in order to advance to this stage. This entails years, years of small deaths and little humiliations and little mortifications. And these are the eventual makings of a great soul. This takes patience to do this day in and day out. This is why the first three mansions are so important, the toil. Um, it sometimes will be at great cost to ourselves, oftentimes. In the fifth mansion, the soul takes care to avoid all occasions of sin, to offer mortifications and penances, and to dispose oneself totally to the Lord in preparation for union. The sixth mansion, he who has God find, he finds he lacks nothing. In the sixth mansions, the soul is ever nearing God in such a way that it is actually tormented. Here the soul finds all sorts of trials that come in a variety of forms, from misunderstandings to physical illness. God is moving the soul closer to him, but he, is, he almost seems out of reach, a torment that Teresa describes as only something close to that of hell. The soul is consoled in moments of intense prayer, locutions, which is when one hears or sees, um, either with the senses or in an intellectual way, direct communication from God. Ecstasy and rapture, which are uh, when all the senses are taken up into prayer for longer periods of time. Uh, the wounding of the heart with divine love, which she experienced herself. And my personal favorite, levitations. Come on, you're supposed to laugh. Okay. <laughs> the sisters had to pull me down. No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> but apparently they had to do that to St. Teresa, though. Okay. Teresa warns that these forms of prayer should not be sought after and are actually not signs of holiness. They, are only, they should be met with humble, they should only be met to, they are only meant to humble and dispose the soul to greater graces. So these are not signs of holiness. Holiness is found in the practice of the virtues. Now the big question is, how does one know if these higher types of prayers are authentically from God? She says that the soul always leaves these moments of prayer with great humility and peace and not wanting to talk about them. These moments of prayer are profound, yet simple, and one does not keep adding on um, to these experiences, like recoloring or reshaping like what happened. It's the same consistent kind of um, uh, recounting of them. These experiences will also come on suddenly and will lead the soul to a great desire to do works of charity, not to be focused on oneself. These prayers are the fourth water, the pure rain on the garden. Yet when the soul is receiving all these graces, it actually painfully longs to die. She says, I die because I do not die. God seems out of grasp, though. The world is unbearable. Yet the soul knows in its very depth that God is actually near, just veiled. Here the soul is being betrothed to God through a deep purification. He who has God finds he lacks nothing. These mansions truly are a unique purification, one that is interior where God purges the last vestiges of self in preparation for total union with him. Deeper prayer is necessary, but on God's terms. Here the soul must cling to God and wants to, finding its hands so empty, yet truly receiving tremendous spiritual gifts from God in secret. As a result, the soul desires to suffer and do penances out of love of God, seeing everything else as truly nothing. The Seventh Mansions. God alone suffices. I feel like there should be like heavily music here or something. Like. <laughs> Teresa says that the seventh mansion, 
uh, is the ability of the soul to live heaven on earth. She says even the soul. Uh, she says even the soul will actually have like an intellectual vision of the Trinity as part of this profound union. Does the soul remain aloof and in a perpetual state of ecstasy? Like is that which? It's like oh, just I'm just walking around praying and holy. Um, no, says Teresa. She says the soul is more alert to the service of God than ever before. And when not occupied with the work of God, she rests within herself in, in, in this divine companionship of total union with God. So she says the soul is actually very, the person becomes very active. She, uh, she has a total confidence in God's providence and will and walks carefully to, um, to never displease him in the slightest. The soul does not escape trials by any means. Yet it walks in companionship with God, with God always before it, is what she says. She says that the soul, just, God is always before it. And the spiritual marriage is what she says. It is kind of the perfection of Mary and Martha. Teresa says that the butterfly that has come out of the cocoon has died and now lives entirely in Christ. She says that the soul is entirely self-forgetful, that the soul solely seeks God's honor, and quote, I love this, takes care of his business and knows that he will take care of hers, end quote. Uh, but again, the soul, this, is, this, is not, this is still humanity, okay? The soul sleeps and eats and is normal, okay? Um, the second effect is a great desire to accept sufferings as a source of greater union with God. So there's a welcoming of sufferings. They, go, they bear no Ill, Ill will towards those who mistreat them and truly love their enemies. Instead of dying, the soul actually desires to live many years so as to suffer and serve God all the more. Since God no longer is far off, God is near. This is like a heaven on earth. But not without trials, she mentions that. The soul does not desire consolations or favors from the Lord, Lord at all. And no aridities or interior trials um, exist in, in the same sort of way. Exterior trials, yes, but interior trials, um, the soul is completely united with God. All of this is replaced with a consistent peace and joy, even in the midst of hardship. She says, quote, fix your eyes on the crucified one and everything will be small for you, end quote. God alone suffices. God alone is enough here. God alone produces and God alone um, is the one that sustains. And the soul really knows that. Um, it's not just speculative. There's like a real experience of that. And that's kind of key with Teresa is that this is an experience. Um, her advice in progressing. Don't we all want to progress now? Yeah, come on. Okay. Teresa reminds us that the foundation is humility and that the proof of this is virtuous deeds. Uh, you know, the, these are the fruits of prayer. And if the virtues are not there, then we are not really praying. Okay, so our, our prayer has to have um, virtue as a counterpart. She also reminds us to never give up prayer, never ever give up prayer. Um, and that this is actually a temptation. If, that's, if that is there, that's a temptation from the devil. And what does Teresa mean for us today? Um, I think one thing is she really reminds us, you know, right now in 2019 of the importance of the contemplative life. Uh, there really is such a, an emphasis on, on activism, um, on, on doing, 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 um, and that being like a proof of something. And, and I think that we really have to go get back to really becoming people of prayer um, and teaching the children that actually as well. 
Um, and, and there's such distractions these days, and we have to re we have to be very disciplined. And that's what the first mansion is all about, actually, is really disciplining ourselves, which I think is even harder nowadays because we have the phone blinking at us and everything. No, it's true. Everyone is, is called to mystical union with God. I mean, everyone, everyone in this room. I mean, this isn't for you know these like lofty saints that were born in the 1500s. This is for actually everyone. And we have to really believe that. Okay, and then you also don't have to be super well educated to pray well. You don't have to have read every single book. You don't have to have the whole summa memorized. Um, that that um, that Teresa, you know, this is a gift from God. Also, that mystics are not aloof. Uh, they actually live deeply in reality and alongside people's real sufferings. Okay, so again, that you know, people are in the seventh mansion are not like just kind of floating on, on clouds and just everything's great. And you can't talk to them. They're supposed to be deep in reality. Um, the spiritual friendships uh, are really important. So she had great friendships with St. John the Cross, with St. Peter of Alcantara, with St. Francis Borgia. Um, and that's really important. I think in our day and age, there's such loneliness and um, isolation uh, that we need to seek out um, good friendships, spiritual friendships, people that like, like prod us along the way. Um, also, that everyone's journey is different. Um, so you can't really compare... You know your journey to your friend, or like you know, we're all going to have different trials. We're all going to look different. Um, our our constellations, our our all of that will look different. Every single person, um, and God is is every soul is unique, and God is active and and uh, bringing every soul along in His own way. Um, so we can't compare ourselves and all that sort of stuff. We actually everybody's on their own journey. Um, also, I think, you know, in an age of um, concern and desire for uh, reform um, in the church, um, in our country, in our families, um, Teresa really notes here that personal conversion is actually where you have to start. Um, and, and, and reform in those levels is necessary, but really it starts with our own personal conversion. Um, St. Teresa, you know, is noted amongst the counter-reformation saints. You know, and these are these are like you know the Council of Trent people and um, people that were really active in the church during the Counter Reformation, and Teresa is noted as one of them. And she she just started convents. I mean, she wasn't in Rome talking during the Council of Trent. I mean, she 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 started places of prayer, and she's considered a Counter Reformation reformer because of because she put prayer back in the center. Um, and I think that that's really what our place is too, is is personal conversion. Um, that, that nothing else will be converted except for our, we have to do it ourselves and we have to live it first. Um, I want to end actually with, with a beautiful prayer of hers. It, um, she has a lot of poems and prayers and everything that a lot of them came out of her mystical experiences. This is called a love um, song. Um, and this, this I think shows St. Teresa's totality. She was like a total type person. Um, and I think this prayer really shows it. Majestic sovereign, timeless wisdom, your kindness melts my heart, cold soul. Handsome lover, selfless giver, your beauty fills my dull, sad eyes. I am yours, you made me. I am yours, you called me. I am yours, you saved me. I am yours, you loved me. I will never leave your presence. Give me death, give me life, give me sickness, give me health, give me honor, give me shame, give me weakness, give me strength. I will have whatever you give. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you. I hope you all love St. Teresa more. How do you do?
Thank you, Sister. We have um, only about maybe five minutes for questions, if anyone would like to ask us your question. Yes. I think it's helpful to not only know about St. Teresa, but to evaluate the stage, uh, the mansion that you're in. Because I know, like, with myself, I have several elements of several. Yeah, I, I think yes and no. I mean, she, she made it as a guide for her sisters, for sure. Um, so I think there is an element. I think I would say yes and no. I would say no because some people fixate on things like that, and they're like, this is where I am. And I got, you know. And God really is the one doing it. But at the same time, when one is having um, spiritual aridity and, and, and stuff like that, and then you read, and you're like, gosh, I'm like, I prayer, I can't, I don't want to pray, all this sort of stuff. And then you read you know, St. Teresa and St. John of the Cross, and you realize, oh, this is actually normal. Um, and I need to persevere. You know, I mean, I think it's actually a good. These are good guides for us to find where we are. But I think some, just be careful about being like, I'm here, and like, you know, kind of fixating on it. So I would say yes and no. Does that help? Isn't that a great answer? Yes. Yes. Oh, it's Marcel Eau Claire. It's um, it's spelled A U C L A I R is the last name. In my opinion, that's the best biography of her. Because he did all sorts of research on other things that she doesn't talk about at all in her autobiography. In the back. Yes, yes, she says that, that, that you, you are often not in a, in a fixed state, that in each mansion there are many rooms, um, and that, yeah, you can go back and forth, definitely. Mm -hmm. And Ruth Burroughs, who's the, the, the spiritual writer I like a lot, she talks a lot about that in her um, Interior Castle Explored, which is the name of her book. She talks about that more. Simple, simple question. What, uh, if you could refresh our, my memory, what are the virtues that show that you really are living the, the holy good life? I think really all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, I think, I mean, Teresa would say for sure humility. She would say humility is the foundation of everything. And that the, the, um, the daughter of humility is obedience, and the sister of humility is patience. And that's actually from St. Catherine of Siena. So it's nothing like courage or... Oh, no, all of I mean, we would say, you know, the, um, the, the cardinal virtues of fortitude, temperance, yeah, all of that. Oh, yeah, all the virtues. I mean, they all, they all are intermingled, you know? Thank you, Thank you. Sister, Thank very you. much. Okay. <laughs> Next Friday's lecture is St. John of the Cross. Um, great friend um, of St. Teresa, and that uh, presentation will be given by Elizabeth Kelly. Thank you everyone for coming.